Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Really, make sure you love it enough. There's a song called I Can't Play the Blues in an Air-Conditioned Room. And I think it was uh, Hank Williams. I might be wrong, and I'll find out if I'm wrong. But uh, Hank Williams Sr. But um, And it was about a guy, he goes, I used to play the blues all day. Now I'm just playing golf. I have to hire a mean old woman just to break my heart. Because all of his life, he just traveled from town to town playing the blues in it, you know, and and podunk places and, you know, bars. And uh, then he becomes famous and everything, (laughs) everything sucks in his life, (laughs) you know. So it's kind of like enjoy the struggle, too. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, 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 very excited to be across from my guest today, Sherry O'Terry, believe it or not. I know you guys know her as Sherry O'Terry, and later on she will describe why in fact, everybody thinks her name is that, but I pronounce it hopefully the proper way. Before I get started, I wanted to thank all of you for being so supportive and so incredible. I never thought that when I started this crazy podcast that there'd be millions of people that listen to podcasts that I've been on. I always thought that my voice uh, put people to sleep, but apparently uh, a lot of people need sleep so that's very important so it costs less to put me on than anybody else that's good but thank you so much your emails there are thousands of them there's so many correspondents and people who've been so incredible and so supportive and all over the world i can't even believe it uh, and i'm i'm truly humbled by it and and grateful so thank you all as i sit across from sherry otiri I want to tell you that I told her as she sat down that I never know what I'm going to say as I sit across from somebody as I start my cold open, which is the six degrees of separation. 
I'd like to say, uh, between myself and, and the guest. And what comes to mind right now is this story that I think I've told parts of the story, but I haven't really told all of it. As a young manager, all you have is your persistence and your ability to navigate with different kinds of people. That's all you have. You look at the skill set of what a manager does, and for those of you who don't know what a manager does, to me, I always try to say the same thing to anybody who asks me. is like people give you a checklist of what they want to have happen in their lives, and you know, number one uh, to ten or whatever it is is going to be different for every artist. There might be an artist that wants to be a radio host, and there might be an artist who wants to be television sitcom star, and there might be an artist who just wants to be the the greatest uh, host there is on television, or there might be somebody who wants to be in films. Everybody has their own thing. Some people want to do a lot of things. Some people want to write, they want to direct, they want to produce, they want to act, and they want to do everything. And the reason why I'm sitting across from Sherry is she has been one of those people who's done all of those things. And, and as you know from the show, I normally want to put people on the show who have been behind the camera and in front of the camera at least doing that kind of thing. So when I think about Sherry, I think about a story that happened to me as a manager. When I was a young manager, and SNL was a very important piece of the puzzle for me because I was in New York. It was a part of my life, but I wasn't in the world. Lauren Michaels didn't know who I was. Marcy Klein, the executive producer, didn't know who I was. Michael Shoemaker uh, one of the producers never knew who I was. Jim Downey didn't know who I was. And yet I was faced with the task of having artists who on their list was, I want to be on Saturday Night Live. And as a manager or for any of you out there in any profession, when you're starting, you have to figure out how to make an impact and get in when you know nobody you don't even have their phone number. You don't even know how to get to them. And even if you had their phone number, why would they pick up the phone and talk to you? So not only do you have to have persistence, but you have to be in a situation where you have some kind of thing that can back up why they want to pick up the phone and why they'd want to talk to you. And the only way I saw of getting into Saturday Night Live was the submission process, which threw me in a situation with everybody else. But when I called Lorne or I called Marcy or Michael, no one would pick up the phone. And why would they? Because I was just a random person calling. I was a young manager. But I had a few different people who were interested in the show early on. The first one was Jay Moore. And luckily for me, through submissions and through uh, some stand-up showcases that I was fortunate enough to work with him and his team, he got on and he was noticed and he was hired. And that was my first in. Now, that doesn't guarantee you that you're going to get your calls returned by Lorne Michaels or any of the members of the team. Because you're only going to get your phone calls returned if the person you have on the show is making a monstrous impact on the show. And at the time, Jay Moore, you know, I felt like he was sort of like a, 
a great baseball player who was somehow on the bench and didn't get to get in probably because he was only like 21 or 22 years old and there were a lot of senior people ahead of him and he didn't have the emotional tools in his toolbox back then to be able to know how to navigate in that world so if something didn't go his way he would make it be known that he was unhappy he would let people know that he was disappointed. And so I had the in, but Jay wasn't exactly ingratiating himself to the show. He'd done some great things on the show, but he wasn't really in that position where he was getting to the point where things were going as well as he wanted them to go. And what happened was after his uh, second year, as Lauren often did and the show often did, they would say to the cast member, listen, we're not sure what we're going to do. We'd like to extend your option another 30 days. And so I asked Jay if he would do that. He said, yes, we extended another 30 days. Then after that option, about a few days before, got the call from Business Affairs. We'd like to extend your option another 30 days. You know, Jay said, you know, let's let's do it. I, you know, want to do the show. I, I know they're deciding on other people and hopefully they'll look at the other people and they'll realize I'm the guy. About 30 days later, I get the call. They want to extend them again for a third time. I called him up. He said, no, I, I, I don't want to do it. I'm going to take my chances and I'm going to, if you can tell them if they want me, I'm available, but... I want to see what's out there for me this next month or so. And what happened during that next month is he got an audition for Jerry Maguire. And he ended up auditioning for the babysitter role with the jazz tapes. He ended up auditioning for the quarterback, which was Jerry O'Connell. And then he finally auditioned for the role of Bob Sugar, which he tested with Tom Cruise and got it. So that worked out for him. But during that period, when I'm the guy who's making the calls, it doesn't ingratiate yourself to the team of people there when you're the guy saying no. You're the guy saying no to Lorne Michaels. And I had to fight a little bit harder to get people noticed. But I had people that I was working with, uh, Jim Brewer and Daryl Hammond, who really wanted to be on the show. That was their goal, to be on the show. The problem with Daryl Hammond was the fact that I really didn't know Daryl that well. And he was a guy who was very, very closed off. You know, Daryl Hammond was one of those guys who, and I could say this if he were here, he was a mystery because he was a constant serious person and rarely funny in a group of people, rarely funny face to face. But when he got on stage, holy shit funny. And so I remember with him, and this is the story I want to tell because I've already told the Jim Brewer story. Daryl had met with me and said that he, his only goal was to do Saturday Night Live. And I said, if I don't get you Saturday Night Live, fire my ass. And I realized he signed with me over all these other people because I convinced him that I could get him Saturday Night Live when I had no control over getting him Saturday Night Live. It was going to be his talent 
But I realized that if I could utilize his talent and my skills as an editor and a creative person, I could at least get him in the door. And then once I got him in the door, I could prepare him for the show. Now, at this time, you were at the Groundlings and you were doing your thing. And I remember, if I'm not mistaken, as I was going through this process, an announcement came out that you and Will Ferrell had gotten the show early. It was somewhere like at the very end of that first season. That season was over. And normally they go through a whole thing where they look at people and in August and September they start adding people. But I saw the announcement. It's like, holy shit, they're hiring these two people. Did I miss out on the boat? Because I guaranteed Daryl that I was going to make this happen. So to hopefully make a long story not as long as it is and have you fall asleep on the couch. I convinced Daryl to go to a comedy club, Caroline's, and I said, I want you to do all your impressions and I want to film it professionally. And I'm going to go in and edit it. And so I went in and I edited it. And this guy, this, this, this guy who I used to do all my editing with was a Vietnam veteran. And he was a little bit out there the kind of character that you would you would think would be a stereotype of of whatever it is stereotype of a vietnam veteran high strung whatever and he used to leave me to edit because i was a good editor and so i remember i had my assistant lynn Getz, because i was at the last minute editing this thing because the deadline was the next day and i knew i've always believed in fedex even though they were right down the street I've always believed in FedEx. If you send somebody a FedEx, they will open the FedEx. And so I'm editing Daryl's footage in this room, this editing bay. There's tapes everywhere. It's like a A-bomb victim from Nagasaki, this video place and whatever. I'm doing it. FedEx deadline is nine. My assistant is waiting, holding open the door of FedEx so I can run to it down the street. And I'm editing and I'm almost done with Daryl's thing, editing down to about seven minutes of all these great characters and the power goes out in the place. I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do? I, I literally, I run out of there. I, I try to find the security guard. You got to, there's a backup power. What can you do? He's like, I'm working on it. So you got to work harder. You got to get it done. I go back up. I've locked myself out of the office. I got to go back down. Could you give me the key, please, sir? You got to get this. Hey, do you want me to work on the power or do you want the key? Nobody's in the building except you. I said, please, just just get it done, whatever. He gets a portable generator or does something, and he gets it going. I get back in there. I do the final edits. I record it from this three-quarter inch tape to a, a VHS tape. I put it in the FedEx, and I am jogging like O.J. Simpson through the airport in the Hertz commercial, down midtown to this thing. She's holding open the door. They're yelling at my assistant, which was Lynn Getz, the, a wonderful, Katz and Getz, a wonderful woman who was the light of my life uh, back then. And we get it. It gets to SNL, and... Literally less than a week later, I get the call. We're going to want to see Daryl Hammond. We're going to set him up at the comic strip and we're going to test him. I said, you're going to test him off the tape. Yes, we're going to test him. We're going to do a test deal at the comic strip. And so we worked on the set. He went on. It went great. And I thought, well, this is all we have to do. I've done it. I've been persistent. I've got it going. 
But no, Lauren says, we want him to come to 30 Rock now and do another test. And so before he went to 30 Rock, I thought to myself as a manager, what am I going to add to the process? This guy's got the talent. He's done it. What can I do? And I said to him, Daryl, I think you can get this thing if you figure out a through line, some kind of through line, because you're the kind of guy, if you could just figure out a character that they could show, they could see that they could say this could seamlessly go on their first show of the year, which you you uh, had leg up was your first character. And so I said, what impression do you have that you've never shown me before? No one's ever seen your stand up, but you can do. That's what I need to see. Is it something that they could put on the show? And he's going through, he's like, I don't know. There's only one impression I do, but it's, it's never been funny. And I said, well, what is it? Ted Koppel. I said, Daryl, your test has got to be a situation where you got Ted Koppel introducing all these characters on Nightline. That should be your test. And that was his test. And they loved it. They asked him back a second time to do some more characters. They loved that, and he got the show. I believed in myself enough to put myself out there and go forward, and when I didn't even really know if I could get him on SNL. But I saw his talent, and I realized with a persistence, if you have some kind of product or some kind of quality that can get you noticed, you put the two together, and it's like... It's like lighter fuel on the fire and a master of impressions. And the greatest thing that I remember was the first episode of the year. I go there early to SNL because he didn't really want to tell me much of anything because he didn't want to jinx anything. And I remember getting there early and I ran into a young five foot five fireball of a woman and I ran into uh, Sherry as she was getting ready for her first show. And I thought to myself, well, when I meet her, she's going to be rude or she's going to be in a situation where she's just completely like focused on what she's doing. But as I've told her all through my life, from the first moment I met her, she treated me like I was like gold and like I was one of the family. All these things on her mind, her first live television show. And she took the time to talk to me and to ask me how I was doing and what was happening in my life. And that meant the world to me. And it proved to me that the good guys can win and the good girls can win. And also in terms of management, Another thing was proven to me through persistence and talent. As I went to the live show at 11.30 and I stood there in the hallway and watched the monitor, the first thing that came up was Daryl Hammond as Ted Koppel in Nightline. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, 
and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. The people who are in the entertainment business who do want to do improv and sketch, a lot of people try to decide what they should do. Should they do the Groundling? Should they do UCB, which is the Upright Citizens Brigade? Um, and when you were doing it, it wasn't run so much as a business as it was run as a creative space. And, kind of business, but and, you, you but, know, but they, more and more as things have gone along, oh yeah, these things are like these businesses where they make hundreds and thousands of dollars off people, and you think to yourself, well, I want to pass and go to the next level, and each time that they don't pass you, is another group of weeks that you have to pay to try to get to the next point. So there's a lot of people out there who are very talented even these days who go through the program once they pay their, I forget what the amount is now, but it's, it's a significant several hundreds of dollars and then they don't get passed. And they or have to they do can't it, even get in. Or they can't get in. But when they do get in, then they go again a second time. Sometimes they don't get passed. And before they finally get past the next level, they might've spent, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. Yeah. So when you were there, take our audience through the process of, of joining and how you got to okay. the place where, in my opinion, back then, and I don't know if it's true today, but to me, the mother load was the Sunday company. Yeah. Uh, I started in basic and I remember just going, when I would go home from my classes, I couldn't sleep. If I did well, I couldn't sleep because I was so excited. And if I did poorly, I couldn't sleep because I felt so bad. You know, I, and I couldn't believe that anything affected me like that. The only thing that ever affected me like that was like falling in love with a guy, you know, but I was just like, I can't believe how much this is affecting me. I love it. And I'm scared of it, you know? And so, um, then after basic, I was moved up to intermediate and, you know, I was so starting from scratch. A lot of these people, you know, they had headshots and people would say to me, I didn't even have a headshot, you know? And, uh, then after intermediate, I had to repeat it, which was the best thing I ever did repeating intermediate, because if you excel too fast, then you won't be able to sustain yourself, you know, and I needed to repeat it. And I was lucky because they could have just dropped me. And so, and I remember hearing that Julia Sweeney had to repeat um, intermediate. So I was like, okay, I feel so much better about it. And during that time I was becoming best friends with Julia's brother who worked the box office. And I met him taking classes, Mike Sweeney. And uh, loved him so much. Now, was that the Mike Sweeney that's the writer? Or is that no, another Mike Sweeney? No, another Mike Sweeney. And uh, so um, then after doing intermediate, I was moved up to lab. And lab, the concentration is on writing there. And, um, and I loved it. 
you know, um, but I was then I was working at promotion. I got I moved over to the record label from publishing to, to the record label. And I worked for uh, J.B. Brenner um, in promotion. And um, I didn't have a computer at home and I had my computer and I would do all my writing there during the day. And it was cool because I learned how to write by myself because I wasn't on the same schedule as all the other kids that were acting. And I remember JB would look out and I would start laughing and he goes, if that's a sketch, I swear to God, (laughs) (laughs) I would get in trouble. And then what was really cool was finally I get into the Sunday company and everybody, how how long before from when you started lab, Oh, so it was two years of classes. Two years say. before you got to the Sunday company. Yeah. Was that normal? Was that quick? Was that long? Uh, no. A uh, mm, lot of people uh, only had to wait like maybe a year, a year and a half in advance. But I had to wait two years. So when but you, I didn't care, you know. So when you get into the Sunday company, how many people, when you get promoted to the Sunday company, how many people are in the Sunday company? Oh, um, um, ah, gosh. Maybe, mm. maybe 12, 12. And who of those 12 would people know? Jennifer today? Coolidge. Jennifer Coolidge. Was she in the Sunday company with me or was she in the main company with me? Um, let me see. Uh, I don't remember everybody that was in the Sunday company, but what I do remember was um, uh, Lorraine Newman's boyfriend was in my class. And I remember um, him saying, hey, do you want to come over to the house and write? And I was like, I wonder if he lives with her. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Well, then I find out she had just had her first baby. I go over and he goes, as if like this, I couldn't believe I was in her house. And he goes, Hey, do you want to meet Lorraine? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and he takes me upstairs and she's laying in the bed breastfeeding and she goes, Oh, I'm so sorry. And I go, um, I could not believe that I was standing next to Lorraine Newman. I was such, so in all. And she used to come see our shows and she had taken me aside more than once and said, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. And I remember when I made it, she was one of the first calls that I, when I got on SNL, she was one of the first calls and she is a, such a beautiful person inside and out. I just love her. Um, so she meant the world to me. And I remember when I got the show, she took me to lunch and she goes, all right, how are you coping? <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? And she goes, Hey, listen, when I was there, you know, Everybody did drugs and no one was going to therapy. No one was, you know, uh, understood about antidepressants or anything like that. And she goes, how you doing? I go, I'm hanging by a thread. <laughs> you know, this was not a good time not to do drugs. Um, but but uh, going back, so you're in the Sunday company, you're in the main company, which is also around 12 people or much. No, main more. company, there's like 30, 30, 35 or and something so like that. And so to get in, somebody has to pass away. Like, how do you get, how do you get in? <laughs> they have to give up their spot. Why would they give up their spot? Because, because they get an acting they, job? They might, yeah, they might have gotten a real acting job. But people were not getting plucked out of the groundlings back then like they are now. So, okay, so at the point... I mean, that- there were amazing people in the company, like, you know, for a long time. Um, and, you know, like I remember... Let me see who was in there. Uh, Lisa Kudrow was in... And, and um, Kathy Griffin, Mike Hitchcock... Tim Bagley, Mindy Sterling, um, 
like people that so damn funny and you know but people weren't shopping at the groundlings like they are now you know uh for talent so back then you're there you're in the sunday company you're in the main company do you remember as you're going there you know you look back at the examples of who before you got to be on television or got to be in the film or well this uh, is where i had an upper hand i'll tell you this to me was my dream I was working at AM Records. For me to be a groundling, I really thought my life is set. I have a great job, and here is where I will be creative. And it's like all I have to do is meet a great guy, <laughs> and I have got a pretty full life. I mean, everybody I knew had free CDs. So I had a lot of friends. <laughs> I remember when I got SNL, there was some people at, at home in Philly. So no more free CDs. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and I would listen to the girls backstage in the dressing room. And a lot of times, you know, they talked about the business and how shitty it is and and what this one got or or that they didn't get up for this and they should have. And I used to think to myself, man, I'm so glad that this is enough for me. You know, like. I'm not an actress, <laughs> you know, but um, of course, then I started doing shows and some people did come. And then I had, a, I had a commercial agent at the time who said, you know, this is not a fluke. You need to take this seriously and quit your job. And for me, like, I had already made my dream come true. I did not imagine any bigger than that. And here I had a decent job. And from where I came from, you know, I had a business card. You know, I mean, I was like putting it in every Mexican restaurant, the fishbowl at lunch. And I was just like <laughs> sending home free CDs with my business card. I mean, I'm like, I don't know if it gets any better, you know, and do I want to take this chance? But I really did remember thinking this. I was guided this. I can't think that, you know. I, I have to take this chance. So I quit my job at A&M and I started temping. And uh, I would say, and that's when my friend Mike Sweeney passed away of cancer during that time. And it was really a tough, tough time. Um, but I would say I was performing every Friday and Saturday night. And I was always in the shows, did pretty well. And... It was a year and a half I was doing it. And then I found out that um, the SNL was coming to see Chris Kattan. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is wild. He's so lucky. And I thought, well, maybe if. But I only had one thing in the show because he he had them come to a showcase for him, which was the Friday Night Late Show. So it's pretty much all him. And while he's changing, someone could do a, a bit. Right. So I did this monologue and I thought maybe they'll remember me. Do you remember what the time. monologue was? Uh, yeah, it was not something I could get on SNL, believe it or not. I tried, uh, but it, I did do it on her on Weekend Update. Her name was Joy Lipton and she was a, um, a girl that uh, was selling um, lingerie and makeup that shouldn't have. 
and the, you know, um, but I did that and, and I, and it went well and I was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, I hope they remember me. So I was temping at Disney legal and my manager at the time called me and said, you know, what are you doing next, next Monday? I was like, very funny. And he goes, I'm said, I'm temping. And he goes, no, you're flying to New York to audition for Saturday Night Live. And I screamed and you don't scream in Disney legal. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. You know, I just from the one monologue, mm -hmm. they didn't see you do anything mm -hmm. else but the one monologue. Mm -hmm. And it was Marcy Klein in the audience. It's incredible. And she had me come out and uh you were on a chris Catan show and one of the things about chris Catan that i always remember more than anything else because he was a guy that was in my mind completely unapproachable he was a guy who was he he was just a person and i could say this if we were sitting right here uncomfortable almost in his own skin and then when he got into a character he was fully comfortable in his own skin, but off stage, you know, when you hear about people who stutter and then yeah. they start singing and then they can sing. Neighbors. Yes. <laughs> but the thing was on this show, and I believe I was there for one of these shows, either something, maybe it wasn't the one you were on, but the thing that blew me away about Chris Kattan when he got on SNL, every single character that he did did not speak a word of English. <laughs> Every character had no... It was almost like he was worldwide comedy. It's like Mr. Bean. Everything mm -hmm. he did could be laughed at by people in Calcutta or Thai Thailand or anywhere. <laughs> I never anywhere. really thought about it like that. Every character... Nothing. No words. Nothing. The first six characters, whether it was the monkey or the guy with the chalkboard or whatever. So that always blew me away. I've never all my career. I've never seen anything like it before. I never seen anything like it since. I've never known anybody who and I don't know what that is or why that was, but that's what he focused in on, and that's what uh, what his lane was. But anyway, so and you he get, did it well. Yeah, and so you get flown to New York. I imagine that Chris was flown so, to yeah, New York too. So yeah, so it was uh, Will. And there were sixteen people Carol, that Chris, flew. And I and Jennifer Coolidge. So Jennifer Coolidge, Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan, yourself, and there were probably eight other people too. Or maybe no, 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 that was it. And then, they only well, flew four. No, in. they 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 flew in thirty six from all over. Thirty six from all over the country. Now take our audience through the process of getting there. You you're put up, I believe, at that time in the Paramount, Paramount Hotel, which the, for those of you who don't know, the Paramount Hotel literally, as Henny Youngman would say, the rooms are so small that oh. you put the key in the door and you break the window. I'm telling you, and I stayed there for eight months and it was like, it, it, it was just a perfect setup for a suicide. <laughs> it was such a sad place. So you're staying there. And so take us through the process of the test of SNL and how it works and how it is and how okay, they well, have you there all day. Four of us were flown out and then we had to do like four characters in say five characters in, in 10 minutes or something like that. And so Will and I, and no, well, I'm going to say we all auditioned and then I'll cut to. Now, Will was part of the Sunday company too? Yes. Or? And, um, and what, what actually, what happened was, okay, we went out the first time and then, and then Lauren and, um, 
uh, who, who's his manager? I love him. Uh, Bernie Brillstein. Bernie Brillstein. The late Bernie Brillstein. The late great Bernie Brillstein. I read his book and I just loved it. And I was able to tell him that while he was alive. Um, they came out and they were in the audience at the Groundlings. And so they saw the regular show, right, that we were doing. And um, where Marcy had just seen Chris's showcase. And so I remember Mindy Sterling was sitting in back of Bernie Brillstein. And she took me. Uh, she came running back after I was on, you know, after the show and she goes, Bernie Brillstein leaned into Lauren Michaels and said, she pops like Gilda. I go, get the fuck out of here. And I'll never, ever forget that. It was so nice to when I finally did meet him. I go, I heard what you said in the audience. Of course he didn't remember. Um, but I said, I could not have had for all my lifetime because there was no one that I related to more than Gilda Radner's comedy when she was on SNL. Like that is what I related to so much. And I just loved her. Well, because a lot of your weekend updates, uh, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, I want to keep staying here, but see, I remember one sketch, you were on top of a desk and some jumper with shorts and that had like big openings around the shorts and you had your ass and Colin Quinn's face. That was the Joy Lipton character that I said they saw me do at Groundlings. Wow, that was... That was, I mean... Yeah, that was the girl who should not have been wearing lingerie. Yes. Um, Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing... Or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So you're going to 30 Rock after you stay overnight. You're talking a little bit with Will and those people, but you're going in. And do you think to yourself, I'm going to get this? Or do no. you think to yourself, hey, no, I'm no, just no. happy I'm to thinking, be here. I'm going to tell my grandchildren that I auditioned for Saturday Night Live. And I remember when it was my turn to go in, there was a guy who walked out in front of, you know, walked out and he goes, get ready. They don't laugh. And I, it was it was a wonderful thing that he said to me because I did not expect any laughter and and it is a wonderful thing because it, it, there's only the cameraman you're you're performing on the stage that the band performs on normally correct yeah it, it, it's and there's a cameraman yeah. and there's a sound guy and there's, and like there's four a, people four people See, sometimes in these days now Lauren will invite a little more writers in and there could be as many as 15 to 20 or oh more gosh. off on the side, but normally there's very there little. There was four people and it was dark and it made it easy. And all I remember was 
trying so hard to make my transitions less than three seconds, you know, because you take a wig off, you put a wig on, or you take a piece of clothing off, or you grab a prop. But I just knew that not to depend on any, you know, just make it the transition seamless, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, it went, I thought, well. How did you know? Because the guy said no one laughs and I looked and I saw Lauren laughing ever so slightly. Which is something a lot of people don't see. Yeah. And I just was like, I left like I was so happy because, you know, I saw him laugh a little bit and, you know, and all you can do is your best. And so I did. And then we went back home and uh, then 11 people from all over from that 36 got called back. And it was Will and I and Chris and went back and Will and I were just, and then this was a shorter audition with less characters. But you have to do different characters. Right. And so Will and I were just at the Paramount um, watching each other's, you know. So you guys ran your sets yeah. against each other. Yeah. We just like watched each other sets and we just, you know. And did you guys did make notes on each other's sets of what could be better or what could be worse? Or? No, it was really just doing it in front of somebody. You know, um, and I remember Chris saying he wasn't even practicing or rehearsing or anything. He's like, come on, you guys, would you just let's go to dinner? <laughs> and then, you know, but we were like totally sticking to it. And then we all went to dinner and I ended up getting food poisoning and just threw up all night long. There was no sleep. My eyes the blood vessels broke in my eyes. You ever see somebody it looks like their eyes bleeding? Yes. Well, they broke all in my face and in my eyes. It was horrendous. And when I went in the next day to the makeup department, they went, oh my God, honey, what happened? I mean, my face looked like, and I just said, just do what you can. <laughs> and so... The lights were dark. I was so grateful for that. And all I worried about, because they really covered up, you know, I was all broken blood vessels all over my face from heaving. And and um, I just, you know, and, and your adrenaline. It didn't matter that I'd thrown up all night and it didn't matter that I had no sleep. It's almost like the adrenaline was so kicked in. And I did my thing and then I left. And How'd then you came feel? back home. I thought I did my best. Did you think I got this? No. No. And then I went back to LA and uh um and then like maybe two weeks later, Lauren said we got a call that Lauren wanted to see Will and I at his office in pa Paramount. So I remember buying a pink dress that I really couldn't afford. But he, and he wanted to see you both individually. Yeah. I was first. So I went in. And um, well, normally when Lauren meets with somebody, from what I've heard from a few people, is that there's really not a lot of words spoken. No. It's almost like he wants to just feel your energy yes. in the room with him. Yes. It's very awkward because you're not sure what he wants and you want him to be happy with you. You know, and so before you go in the meet with Lauren, are you at least thinking to yourself, okay, now I know I can get this 
and I'm going to get this. I just got to go in. I thought this is a good sign, but um, I it's probably just another step. And so I went in and he's like, Sherry, we'd like you to come to New York. And he was quiet. And I was like, um, to, to shop, <laughs> um, uh, to hang out. Um, uh, and he goes, and you know, you'll have to move. And I'm, and I'm not saying anything. And I, like, I want him to say the words. Like, why isn't he saying the words? And I just thought that, Maybe I didn't get it. I have to move and they're going to try me out, you know, and so how did the meeting end. And then I just, I, I think I had gotten it, you know, but those words weren't said. And I guess I figured I'll find out later. It's a stupid person that asks a question. <laughs> I'll find out later. I've done that so many times where it's like, I'm so scared to ask a question that I'm just like, uh, you know, I'll wait till later and find out. I'll call somebody. Okay. And so you get out. You probably wait in your car for Will to no, get no, no. done. I, I went behind the desk and hugged him and he was not ready for that. And I was like, you know, I really hugged him. He's like, okay. <laughs> um so you go and so will has his meeting so then i walked out and there was will and he goes what happened and i didn't want to ruin it for him you know i didn't want to spoil his surprise yeah. so i just go he just asked more questions <laughs> and then i went in and i waited for him and he walked out and um he didn't say a word and we just held our held hands and walked out not said a word to the parking lot by the time we got to our cars, we just started jumping up and down and screaming. And we both, and then we pulled over in our cars to call our dads oh. on the payphone. On the payphone. Awesome. But you still Dad. didn't really understand if you'd gotten it or not, had did you, or you? No, but then we kind of knew, you know, but even though I said, did he say the words to you? Like you got it? And Will had done this thing where he brought in a case of fake cash. <laughs> and, he goes, and you know what he said to me? He goes, man, that cash thing wasn't a good idea. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, he did not laugh. And I go, and I go, well, at least you didn't hug him. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? He says, "You know what? Those two kids know him with the cash, her with the hug. You know, they're I not going to be the person out. who brought the fake cash and hugged them." Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so you find out you get the show. How? I mean, officially, how do you find out? Uh, I just knew because then Marcy Klein called, and um, yeah, it was. You know, it, and you were talking earlier about like Daryl and, and being emotionally ready for it. I, the funny thing is what I realized was I truly was ready for it work-wise. Like the groundlings and and having to write so much by myself because I was working at a Records and all that stuff uh, was the perfect preparation for this. Um, you know, thank God for the writing. You know, and all that I, you know, I really, because 
what you don't know is he said to me in the meeting, he goes, now we're going to give you your own office because we'd like you to write. And I was like, so flattered. I was so flattered. And I was like, oh my God, what a statement that is. Little do I know that I'm going to have to write for nothing, you know, and little did I know that I will be writing and competing against the other writers. Like that was, I, I was amazed at that. I was truly, and that is where the pressure comes in truly (laughs) because you are auditioning every week for a show you already got. You're auditioning and you're competing against writers I never saw myself competing against the other cast members. And I should explain to the audience what Sherry means is that, so there's just, there's, there's all different kinds of people at SNL. There are writers who are just hired to write. And when you're hired as a cast member on the show, whether you like to know it or not, you are hired as a writer performer. And so they want you to write. Now you have two ways you can write. You can write and collaborate with the writers who are just there for writing. And then as far as navigation, you don't have to worry as much because they're fighting just as much for your sketch as you are. But they also then write their own sketch with their name as first. And I remember reading Bunny Bunny and Alan Zweibel, and it seems like it's been the same ever since. You are lucky as an actor if you find someone who will collaborate with you. And people at home would think, well, why wouldn't anybody want to write with with one of the cast members? If they they don't have to, um, a lot of writers would like to write from their own, you know, from their own concepts, you know, uh, and what they want to write. They don't want to write for you necessarily. So you are at their mercy of being cast and just say you never get cast for whatever reason. I remember the when I wrote uh, Leg Up, the first thing with Steve Korn and Molly and Steve I wrote Korn, it. Steve Korn, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful write. Here's like a real straight guy's guy who could write well for a woman. And then after that, it the, my writing co- um, partner, I would say, besides Will and us writing the cheerleaders and and uh, writing morning latte, whatever we did together, was um, Matt Piedmont and my great, own great characters. Yeah, uh, Matt would write, and I guess he was my, you know, Alan's Y Bell back then because, you know, I remember having a meeting with Lauren, and he goes. Sherry, are the writers writing for you? And I said, you know, n- not really. Well, Gilda used to bake cookies if that helps. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm. Like, what do you say to that? And I was just like, oh boy, not a baker. Did you bring him gifts the next the next week? <laughs> the, oh, the writers? Yeah. Fuck no. <laughs> You know, it was kind of like, all right, you know, I guess see, this, it's not, you know, I don't think things are going to get better as far as, as far as being written see, for wanna, by the writers. See, I want to share with you the perception of a guy who was there with two cast members at the time with one cast member gone up. I was there with Jim Brewer and I was there with Daryl Hammond. And the next year uh, I was fortunate enough to work with Tracy Morgan to get him on the show with his talent and mine. And my perception and sitting around with those three people was, and they were in the sausage factory with you. Sherry O'Terry gets on all the time. Mm. And I don't think there's anybody in the country 
that would say that you were lacking in stage time on Saturday Night Live? Well, I think because I wasn't cast much. So if my stuff that I wrote didn't get in, you know, um, it wasn't like I could depend on being cast, you know, during because it was like to the read through. Everybody looks to see what they're cast in, you know, so they they they're ready for that sketch to come up. And I didn't have, you know, much where I was, but I worked really hard to get on. And I was lucky that I got on and was able you know, to get my stuff across. But that is the, that was like the hard thing there. And, and, you know, everybody suffered from, cause everybody, you know, it's like, everybody wants to, to be on and every writer wants to get their, their stuff on. And every week there's no guarantees of anything. And I remember when I think my second or third year I did just shoot me, I fell and I came out to L.A. and and to film it. I was like amazed. I felt like I came from kind of um, a comedy third world into, you know, lush, beautiful. People are like, Miss O'Terry, what would you like in your eggs? I go, what's your angle? (laughs) (laughs) What's your angle? You know, Uh, and and knowing that I was going to be in the show, no matter what, it made me almost want to cry. I'm like, wow, this is a really funny line. And wow, I'm going to be in the show no matter what. And the, and that feeling of knowing that was, and the way that they worked, you show up at 10 or whatever. I was just like, this is amazing. What a, a great deal. One of the things that also blew me away about being there amongst these cast members, I believe it was Spade's last year. I believe he carried over to that year and and it was Will's first year. And three people who had no attachment, it seemed, out in the world. They had no emotion, it seemed, one way or the other through that hallways, whether they got on or they didn't Mm. get on or whatever happened. And it was Spade, Norm MacDonald, and Will Ferrell. It felt to me like... Well, the thing is, is Will was going to get on no matter what, you know, because not only did he write for himself, but he was written for every week. So, and you know what, even at the Groundlings, he was not one to panic. Um, And do you think that's a quality that you would recommend to actors and actresses to have, like to... Oh my God, yes, but it depends on, you know, where you're coming from. That's like almost like a childhood thing. Um, how you're wired, how you're made. And, and it's um, like once you get there and if somebody said to me, if you could give yourself any advice for when you first started SNL, what would you have said? And I say, please enjoy yourself. Take a deep breath and enjoy yourself. You're meant to be here. But I feel like from my background, I always questioned whether, like, you know, I deserved to be there in, in, and creative wise, I knew that I could do it, but it was hard for me emotionally because, you know, I didn't, uh, I just didn't have the foundation, um, I would say, 
mentally to believe that it was mine and that, um, but I was always like a nervous person and a worrier. I never saw that in you in those hallways. Well, that's good. You should see me in my dressing room. But <laughs> Hence that's the name Otiri. <laughs> but that's the place to have those emotions in the closed door in the dressing room. Well, downstairs, I was always really just thinking about going through. Another you know, thing that I wanted to share about you that to, to everybody here is that I never saw you fuck up. And even if you fucked up, no one would ever know that you fucked up. When you did something in dress, if you were in dress rehearsal doing a character that was your character, the chances of you not showing up in the live show to me were slim and none and slim left town. You were just money every uh, time. You should have seen the sketch that Molly and I wrote called Card Store. <laughs> you know what's so funny was we wrote this sketch, these two women that own a card store. And I remember it went so bad, so bad in dress that we were almost laughing during it. And, you know, like I never broke or anything like that, but we walked in and we just laughed and we looked at the board and, you know, you would always see the, the, the sketch titles, titles of the sketch that didn't make it were all the way to. That's right. The, in between right. shows, Lauren would meet with the writers and the cast. I don't know if at the time it was uh, with them as well, all in his office, sitting around like this office would fit yeah. like 50 people in there. And the show was all set up <clears throat> by the cards. That's right. And you would tell index you that cards. index cards t- stuck with a stuck stick. And pin. then you had commercial in yeah. between. And I remember we just walked in and we cracked up. Card store could not have been further to the left. <laughs> and what we did was we like, I think one of us took it down and we put it under Lauren's um, DVD player or it wasn't DVDs, tape player underneath it. And for the whole five years, whenever one of us sat near that uh, DVD, I mean that you know, tape player, I would always pull out the <laughs> card and for five years and show it to Molly across the room and she'd start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> card store. <laughs> it's coming back. It's coming back. Um, but you know what? When I they did my best of, they said, you know, what about bloopers? We had a hard time finding bloopers. And I can remember the bloopers. Uh no, because coming from the Groundlings, for me, I really stuck by the rules. And you don't break. And I remember loving Carol Burnett, but I did not like when they broke. Because I almost felt like, no, I want to see the whole sketch. I want to see the sketch. I don't want to see you laughing. Because I was so into it. And, you know, and we knew that you never break on SNL. That's what we knew when we came in the beginning. And then I saw people starting to break. And then I knew that it was now okay to break. It was, you know, because they would never have broken again if it wasn't okay to break. And you cannot break if you if you can, if something happens one time, Will and I were doing a um, uh, morning latte and we were in dress and Lauren and he um, and 
Jerry Seinfeld is coming on and he wrote a book. It was when the when the the zone came out and he wrote a book comparable to that called The Realm. And Will at one point, you know, opens his arm with the books in his hand and it smacks me in the head and I completely forgot about it. Well, it smacked me so hard in the head that um, the audience went, oh, (laughs) and I started laughing. I'm telling you, I was seeing stars. (laughs) I started laughing. That was like the dress show. And I couldn't contain. He started saying my my, I couldn't get it back. (laughs) And he started saying my lines. And he was like, you know what I can tell you want to say right now? (laughs) Now I know what you're thinking. You are thinking I and tears started coming. Real tears started coming down my face. Um, And but that was in the dress room. And the only other time did that show get on air? Yes. That's sketch, um, yeah. But I didn't make that, you know, okay. like I knew the hit was coming. And the other time was when Chris Catan and I were doing the sex couple, the, you know, uh, we were in, uh, in a lodge and we're doing the whole, you know, sex thing where we're getting hot and heavy. And he puts me up on these horns from a, <laughs> like a, a deer that was shot. And I'm, I'm standing up there and my legs are up and what I don't know in dress. And, and I look off. And the audience is like roaring. They're laughing. And I'm thinking, damn, I didn't know this funny. This was that funny. And here my shirt was completely open. <laughs> I had no idea. Thank goodness. And I usually always wear a bra. But I remember thinking I was in a rush. I almost didn't wear a bra. And that's not like me. Thank God. <laughs> because I didn't feel it. I didn't know. And I was looking off to the side and I knew when they were laughing that hard, don't move, do not move. This is killing. And here, and then I saw Chris and then Chris comes up and closes my shirt. And I was like, Oh, and I felt so stupid. I was so embarrassed, but they didn't even put that on my best of as a blooper. Cause they go, Sherry, that would like be the only one or something. Like that. But I heard Chris Catan has it on his best of little bastard. <laughs> it wasn't his blooper. It was mine. But, uh, well, I think at the Growlings, we were just very, um, st- it was really structured and I totally believed in, you know, commitment. And that's what I love about the Growlings. It's, you know, you commit. And even when you're dying, you commit. And I admire that when I see it in other people, you know. Tell me something that Lauren Michaels told you throughout the five years that stuck with you and tell me something that he didn't tell you that stuck with you. Well, he never said good job, which I would have killed for. It's kind of like, you know, you just want his approval. And the more someone holds back their approval, the more you need it. It's like, you know, you're starving and, You know, I'm sure people that have it more together mentally aren't starving as maybe as much as I was. (laughs) Um, I would say not mentally, but emotionally. Um, But, you know, the only thing I would get was when I saw him laugh in in, we were in read through. If I did something and he laughed, it was like a shot of adrenaline all through my body seeing him laugh you know it's I never wanted somebody's approval so much and uh let's see so you know that 
I remember one time passing him passing Daryl in the in the hallway and he goes, Daryl, good job. And I was like a child. I was like, Lucky Duck. <laughs> you know? Um and one what did he say? He didn't say much. I mean, I'd love to I'd love to be able to tell you something he said that you know, I would have loved to have had him said more to me, something. Um, yeah, I can't, I, I can't think of anything he said. I don't think I'm the only one. And I think when, you, you know, his way of like, when you're getting on, that's, that's what you have to interpret that as he yeah, thinks you're doing a good job. And one of the things I always say to anybody who's been on the show or who's on the show that I've worked with or people who I haven't worked with, the man has produced a television show for 40 years. I defy anybody to name any show that's been on for 40 years. The history of television, what, it started in the 50s. So, and he's been doing television 40 years of that, 40 of 65 years. And, and I consider, and my relationship with Lauren is that I've never been a guy who I let's do lunch or let's hang out or let's do whatever. And what I wanted to say was, is that I think his way of uh, doing things is, you know, when you're on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, when you're being invited to that dinner at Spago or wherever it is. Or, I remember being invited to the inaugural, President Clinton's inaugural. Yeah. And, you know, when those things are happening, I took my dad to the Kentucky Derby, took my stepmom to the inaugural, and it was just like, and then being able to have my family take the train up, it was, you know, it wasn't just for me, it was for everybody. And, you know, it, and I also think about the stage. I remember I would go to the, sometimes on a Sunday I would, or when we had a hiatus, I would go to the uh, Museum of Television and Broadcasting and I would look up old shows and I remember seeing Sid Caesar, your show of shows, and Emma Jean Coca and... I'd love to do that story. I mean, because that was like you, you're the first live comedy show. Your show of shows. Yeah. That incorporated sketch, I believe. Yeah. Um, and I used to watch those and because uh, I just got into the history of, of that studio. And um, yeah, it was to say it was surreal it was bigger than i had ever imagined you know so but as i say you know, when you talk about i relate to so many of those people that when you get it too you have no idea you're not totally some are not totally equipped to manage um the the pressure um and that's why I say my only regret is that I didn't in, allow myself to enjoy it more. I am the luckiest girl in the world to have gotten to do all those characters and, you know, be a part of history with the show. Okay, final roundup here. Tell me about your biggest disappointment that ultimately led to something great. There was a movie that I really, really wanted and and I auditioned for it and my friends were producing and I auditioned for it like twice and the director did not want me. He was like Scandinavian, this guy and and didn't know who I was or anything like that. But 
he was dead set against me. Never saw the show, nothing. And I wanted it so bad because I loved this script. And so they give it to another girl and then I get the script, Scary Movie. And this other script I felt was like, you know, it was very interesting and kind of cerebral and, 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 and I thought, wow, what a great thing for me to do. That's such a departure from what I do on SNL. And then when I, you know, got the scary movie script, I was like, you know, I wasn't feeling excited about it. And really I hadn't read the script. I just read the, you know, my part and, and then after Keenan and I met and I got it, I was flying out and I was, sitting with the girl who got the part in the other movie. And then she was up one up for me. Thank God. And she goes, and she came back and introduced herself and she said, I'm such a big, I don't even know if she thought you knew if I was up for it or anything. And I was just like, Oh, so nice to meet you. And, and, and then I were all staying in the same hotel. And then my old boyfriend was also in this movie and in this hotel and my two friends that were producing it were in this hotel and it was it was really like oh my god i this is rough this is rough and then and everybody's partying in the you know the downstairs the their regal beagle and so i started doing you know this the movie scary movie and from day 1 i started having so much fun. And I started watching scenes and I started seeing how good they were and um, loved my part, loved what Keenan was letting me do with it as well. Loved the way he was directing everybody. And I was like, this is kind of funnier than I was thinking. And which and project became the biggest? I will not say. I will not no, say which what the project, project became the biggest. Well, that one didn't even get released. It went straight to DVD. And even a good friend of mine, another great, great friend of mine, like at the time Jeff Goldblum was in it too. And it never, and I ended up, well, you wanted to talk about things happen sometimes so disappointing and they turn out for the best. I ended up, feeling like the luckiest girl in the world to be a part of that movie, to be a part of, you know, everybody that I worked with that. And I still have on my wall for the sales of it with the two masks. Yes. You know, um, but that was, a, you know, a, a huge disappointment that turned into one of the best things that could have happened. Fantastic. Your proudest moment in show business. Being on the here. cover of Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Like I remember I, I would that that week that it was on the newsstands, I stood for way longer than I should have at every newsstand, <laughs> hoping and right next to it, hoping that someone would say, um, hey, no one, nothing, no one. And I remember the guys in the stands would say, you know, the guy working there, honey, if you need to buy something, <laughs> you can't just stand here. And then one time I just did it and I broke down and I go to the guy, that's me. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I go, that's me. <laughs> and I felt so 
weird, you know, but I'm like, no one else is here. <laughs> I mean, if anyone saw me do this, I'd be the laughing stock. But I didn't care because this week is going to be over soon. And, and, you know, and I'm never going to pass this way again. <laughs> and he just looked and he goes, no shit. In an accent, no shit. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to say, he said, that's nice, but if you're going to buy something. Yeah, yeah, you still need to, you need to get some gum. You need to get some gum. Um, uh, but yeah, that was pretty surreal. That was, you know, that was like a, just I couldn't believe it. No one could. I framed that for more people than who wanted it. <laughs> Did they like it more than the free CDs? Um, no, they wanted the free CDs. But what was great was you want to talk about everything coming around in a full circle was what they what my art my part of the article because I shared the cover with Will, Molly, and Chris, and what my part of the article was all centered on was A and M Records. But you know something. Mm-hmm. Three of the four on the cover from that Groundling show. Yeah. So it's amazing. You just kept up the work ethic and did it. And so my, my final question for you is this. So there's a lot of... Do I still orgasm when I kiggle? Oh, shoot. I can't ask that question. <laughs> my final question is, is for those people out there in any profession, they're, they're, they find themselves in some small town... They have thoughts about being at a different level. They have these imaginary thoughts of how they could be or how it could possibly be, but they just don't have any idea how to make the leap and get there and have the kind of career that you have. And so I thought maybe you take our audience into that world as to what that means for not only an artist like a young performer, who's not even a performer yet, but in any profession that I look at, and you've also executive produced and done things of that level as well in your writing. So what, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out to get to the levels that you've gotten to? You know, as I say, when I moved to LA, it was not to be an actress. Um, it was steps that I took to explore a part of, of myself. And it was really, that's why I'll never forget that woman saying, Sherry, you're funny. You should do the groundlings. And her name is Susan Lindner. Never forget it. And, you know, saying, what is that? I did not know that this existed. And it's like all of those great places, UCB upright, wait, yeah. Upright. Um, and, uh, Second City. And, and I say to anybody who's going, go and see a show. If you relate to the show, then take the classes, you know, in that one particular theater. But I fell in love with that. And that led me to SNL. And, you know, here's the irony is that like, I went my first job in acting besides doing a Circle K Burger commercial and all the time I did, uh, I did, uh, the groundlings and performed and wrote was SNL. So I went from that and, you know, usually people struggle, struggling actress, and then they get their big break. I got my big break. And now like I'm a struggling actress. So it's, there's so many different stories of how people get somewhere, but I was lucky to be, 
not, and everybody wants fame, which is such a sad thing. And, you know, when people ask me about their kid being talented, I said, are they doing plays in school? Uh, well, no, well, they should be doing plays in school, you know, and then you can really know how devoted they are to this. Um, they can sing. Are they singing in school? Uh, no, you know, everybody's passing the time when you should be learning your craft and studying and having respect for the people that came before you learning from them. And I guess I'm, I'm old fashioned in a way, but I just stumbled upon something that I loved and it took me to a place that I'd never dreamed of. So find something you love and, uh, and just keep, you know, and hone your skill, hone it, do it in front of friends, do it in front of people. Um, that's why I love reading biographies because I love, everybody's got a different story of how they came in a different struggle. And it always makes me feel good. Sometimes like if I feel like I'm struggling and I read a book on somebody's life, like I just read wonderful book, Ellen Burstyn's and I, um, you know, everybody has a struggle and a story and, you know, and think of the people, everybody's freaking writing books now, people that don't even read books are writing them. So, you know, you can also now read anybody's book that you admire and, uh, you know, and, and kind of follow, but everybody's path, you know, is going to be different. So really make sure you love it enough. There's a song called, I can't play the blues in an air conditioned room. And I think it was uh, Hank Williams. I might be wrong and I'll find out if I'm wrong, but uh, Hank Williams senior, but, um, and it was about a guy. He goes, I used to play the blues all day. Now I'm just ha playing golf. I have to hire a mean old woman just to break my heart because all of his life, he just traveled from town to town playing the blues in it, you know, and, in podunk places and, you know, uh, bars and uh, then he becomes famous and everything <laughs> everything sucks in his life <laughs> you know so it's kind of like enjoy the struggle too because when you look back there'll be you know like, like the times that I was in classes at the Groundlings oh my god and with Mike Sweeney and and our little barbecues and not having any money and just being creative and writing they were like romantic times you know, and it was the same at SNL, I have to say, writing and laughing. And uh, that was even though it was in a much bigger arena, it was still like there was nothing better than Will and I writing and like a cheerleader or something like that would pull a pal and we would be cracking up at three in the morning. You know, so. Do the work and. And commit. I'm so glad you came here and uh Me too. This was fun. It's like I always say that most of your characters they don't know how bad off they have it. But they Ignorance is bliss. have this positive attitude despite it. I just want to say that one of the things you said when you came here and throughout this interview you said you never knew that you deserved to be here. And I can assure you from somebody on the outside who's been on the inside and I've known you for a long time 
I think everybody listening here on this podcast would say that you deserve to be here and you deserve to be a force that you are in this Wait business. Minute, who's that guy in his underwear raising his hand? <laughs> Don't be a jerk. Let him go out on a nice note. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you Barry. Sherry. Thank you so much. <laughs> As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.